It is the Week in Sports Cars on the Marshall Pruitt Podcast, brought to you by Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers and my brother from the UK, Graham Goodwin. Mate, it's been a while, hasn't it? Dear, dear me, I'm sure you're fresh as a daisy from Laguna Seca, ah. but uh, hopefully this week's going to be less challenging than last week was for you. Yeah, we're uh, we're all good. I think we have a, a living arrangement arranged, planning to move middle of next week, right after the IndyCar finale at Monterey. So all is looking good there. If you are listening for the first time, thank you. This is our listener-driven weekly sports car show. We ask for your questions on Facebook and Twitter, and they sometimes filter in from other places, and we bring these together, stack them into categories, both WEC, ELMS, Asian Le Mans Series, and just general ACO goodness. We also do things on IMSA. We then have often some form of maybe SRO. We always have categories titled general and fun, so between those, we tend to float around, have a bit of fun here. Graham, a person whose face, voice, and just spirit can definitely all be seen, <laughs> heard, or felt on FIA WEC broadcasts, and also every week here on our little week in sports cars show. Runs a delightful website as well by the name of dailysportscar.com. If you are not a frequenter, please frequent. I am Marshall Pruitt. I tend to do the North American goodies, IMSA being what I focus on most heavily. In between the two of us, we talk words out of our mouth, guided by what you all have sent in. The one thing you should know up front, this isn't always the most serious show. Sometimes we can get a little ranty. We have a couple no. of different soapboxes, yes. Uh, we're a mounting number of sponsors for our little soapbox rants. And the other thing, to kick off every show. Graham Goodwin is in charge of picking the category. What should we do knowing that we have last week's questions to get to and some new ones that have come in this week following IMSA's WeatherTech Sports Car Championship visit to Laguna Seca? Well, let's kick off with that, uh, Marshall, because that's the event that I'm sure is going to be most fresh in our listeners' minds right now after the twists, literal turns of uh, Laguna Seca. We're going to kick off with a few of those. Um, I'm going to kick off with one that I know is someone who's been hanging on for some answers on some of these questions. Matt Nieder from Facebook says, It was a silly season. It's fully upon us. He's got a rapid-fire list of drivers might be looking for seats in 2020. I'm not going to go into the ins ins and outs of details, I'm just going to throw the names at you, and you just tell me what we can say. Alessandro Balzan. I th thought someone who I saw was Balzan in the paddock at Monterey, and it wasn't him. I've heard nothing just, to suggest yeah. that the delightful Italian, and I truly love the guy, champion, really amazing driver. I've heard nothing to suggest Alessandro will be a full-time member of the IMSA paddock next year. And as I try and say often, I truly hope I am wrong about that. Okay. Madison Snow. Saw his lanky and lovely self from afar. Didn't <laughs> get a chance to catch up with him. Know that he has tried to re-engage with the Paul Miller racing team a wee bit. I don't know what plans he might have simply because I've yet to find the time to catch up with him and see if a return is possible, Matt. Okay. Currently a silver driver, but I don't think for much longer. Trent Himben. 
I would say based on driver ratings, as Graham properly leads with here, I know that the Meyershank Racing Team has a massive set of plans they're working on to finalize for next year across both IMSA and IndyCar. Believe that news, which was expected to land already, then possibly now a few days from now. I'm hearing that's now more early October, maybe. So uh, I would say that young Trent would certainly factor into those plans for next season, but all depending upon driver ratings for sure. And who knows what kind of adjustment would be needed. Colin Brown. Have heard some good things about the young Jedi there. Haven't written about it. Probably keep holding until things seem a little bit more firm, but it sounds like he has a couple of very interesting offers in multiple classes in IMSA for next year. Could very well see him remain in DPI. Have, I guess, everything barring the LMP2 class. I've actually heard scenarios where he could have opportunities next year. That fascinates me, and I hope that his father... One of our good friends, who also oh, yeah. is a co-host of one of our weekly shows, Inside the Sports Car Paddock, finds gainful employment next year. And if he can somehow continue engineering his son after Core shuts down their Nissan DPI program, I think that'd be pretty darn cool as well. Indeed, indeed. The final one, uh, Cooper McNeil, after two years with Scuderia Course, not really fighting for a championship. Uh, any rumors that that might change? Yeah, I'm hoping Cooper gets retained. I'm I'm hoping his sponsors <laughs> decide to hold on to him. Cooper being the son of WeatherTech founder owner David McNeil. I it's interesting. Been wondering, curious about certain things, Matt, when it comes to Cooper. I do know that they have a very strong relationship with Scuderia Corsa, team owner Giacomo Mattioli and whatnot. That is a bit of a nomadic entity, though, in terms of the McNeils and weather tech. And I think that they are going to always look to put themselves in the best place possible when it comes to victory. I do not believe, to close here on this question, that the Scuderia Corsa folks have done anything wrong, negligent, or otherwise this year. If you look at who they have as a co-driver in Tony Vlander, you do not get a sharper tool than that. No, I no, no. just don't think that Ferrari has been among the most favored nations when it comes to balance of performance this year. I mean, looking at looking at the GTD season so far, we have Acura in terms of wins. Acura is there. Lamborghini is there, Porsche is there, Lexus is there, even BMW is there, Mercedes AMG is there. Of the very few, and I do mean very few, that are in the winless column, we're staring at Ferrari and we are staring at Audi. Uh, McLaren obviously has come in as a new manufacturer in the Sprint Cup with a Compass team, but if you look of the not look at the nine manufacturers, Matt, that are involved in GTD, uh, only two full time entrants. So of the eight, six have won races, two have not. Ferrari's one of them, and so the baton of unhappy Bopinus 
Did I say bo penis? I think it's, I it's did. A penis. I Ages. did. <laughs> I got to write that down. That's another hashtag for our uh, sayings from the show. Um, it gets passed around. There's usually one or two, maybe even three manufacturers each year in GTD that just, I mean, you almost ask why they bother showing up. And it's nothing to do with the manufacturers. It's just you look at the BOP and go, come on, man. I hate to say it, but it's definitely felt like Ferrari's been in that come on, man, year. And so there you go. They've been competitive, right? They've they've had a couple podiums, three, four, whatever the exact number is. They've been able to show well. I'm just struggling to re- recall a time, Matt, where you go, ooh, boy, they are on fire. Lamborghini, as they were at Monterey this past weekend. I mean, it's pretty clear the whole time that something strange would have to happen for the Paul Miller Racing entry to not be up front and not win. They were up front. They won, kicked everybody's behind, drew out a, for them, phenomenal gap to second place. For those thinking BOP, a ridiculous gap. I've yet to see a weekend that I can recall, at least, Graham, this year, where I thought Ferrari was in a similar place where they could truly vie for a win. So uh, to come back to close the question there, could they go to another team? Maybe um, you would just have to hope that when we come back next year, we're not talking about Ferrari or, frankly, any brand being on the uh, the downside of uh, B.O. Penis. Okay. Um, I'm going to go through a couple of questions on a similar kind of vein. I just wanted to add in a point myself at the end of those two, both about DPI. One, in the case of Cadillac, the other one, Mazda. Uh, Thomas Pendergast from, uh, from Facebook asks about uh, Cadillac, and Jerry Harding from Facebook asks about Mazda. Uh, Thomas saying, could the lack of performance of the caddies be more of a function of the type of circuits in the second half of the season and or getting outgunned in the R&D war by Acura Mazda? Not so much a BOP problem. It seems the caddies have always favoured the circuits on the first half of the schedule. Jerry says after watching the virtually the entire race be neatly sorted into Acura 1-2, Caddy 3-5, Mazda 6-7 of, I only have one thought, has the BOP gone wrong? I'm going to add in, by the way, we have, remarkably, after a period of time when BOP just did not seem to be a regular source of um, conversation about IMSA come full circle into something where it dominates the debate about just about every class. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's cover this off as quickly as we can because <laughs> one of the things about having to not travel during the summer, which has more or less never happened to me as an adult. And getting to my first IMSA race since May is a reminder of, oh, my God, I just want to kill myself uh, after the 47th <laughs> BOP conversation of, and I'm not I'm not no, no, speaking down about anybody who was having these conversations with me, but just the, we're getting murdered on BOP. I mean, it's it's just... It's just the way things function in the paddock. Uh, and even the ones with the advantage are complaining and politicking like they're, oh, my God, they're just trying to run us out of the sport. And I'm sitting there going, you just destroyed everybody in qualifying. Oh, I know. But, you know, uh, here's some super reason why we got lucky. Really, we should be last. By a miracle, we were first. You know, okay, right, pal. Um, Cadillacs have a very unique 
BOP strategy applied by IMSA in that they were so dominant to start this new formula in 2017 that the series just kept applying more and more and more and more. And finally they got them to a point where they released their, their death grip on the class. We've gotten to a place where to keep the Cadillacs in check, they, I would say primarily it's the weight it's just the ridiculous amount of weight that they carry. They're the heaviest car in, in the class by a, a decent margin, and they just still received a 20-kilo or 44-pound weight reduction to give them a chance to run third <laughs> or fourth. So if you think about how heavily they have been sanctioned, they were just given a massive weight break and a you know, a small amount of power. We're told it was just a couple of horsepower, but regardless. And doing that was only enough to move them ahead of the Mazdas. No hope of keeping up with the Acuras. So there is something to the circuit argument. If you look at a track like a Mo Sport, a or Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, uh, you look at something, Graham, like a Laguna Seca, where it is a lot of vehicle dynamics. It's not a flat track. It's not mostly, you know, billiard smooth. It's some sort of lots of movement, lateral, vertical, the car is up and down. And it's just, again, the proverbial roller coaster circuit. Those are the circuits where excess weight, that extra mass being carried is certainly going to penalize you more than you know maybe a daytona for example where uh, you're just not asking the vehicle to do a lot of complex things all at the same time brake turn roll heave set just more simplified dynamics in place so there is certainly a thing where you could say layout wise there's some tracks that might penalize the cadillac more than the others definitely accurate but i'd say keep in mind the weight is the thing that penalizes the Cadillac. If you bolt that amount of weight onto the Acuras, <laughs> we are having the same conversation. The The penalty of the weight is the thing that will make any DPI model, or frankly, any model in a BOP structure, mm-hmm. suffer. And that's what we saw. So it's not just the, hey, we're having to accelerate more weight, slow more weight, turn more weight. It's the And what does that weight do to the tires? We saw Cadillacs really struggle. Uh, Monterey, for example, coming out after a pit stop on cold tires. No tire warmers allowed in IMSA. On cold tires, if we had a Acura pit and a Cadillac right behind it, just even from the overhead camera, the, uh, the helicopter, it was incredible to see the traction difference in the Acura being able to put down its power and accelerate compared to the Cadillac, just because it has this weight, has this mass, and it just is very unfriendly in the getting up to speed on tire on cold tire standpoint, Graham. And then also right. in just the lifespan of those tires throughout a stint. So uh, just to, to close this very quickly, as long as the Cadillacs are being asked to just, you know, have a, a, I don't know what a seven or eight year old, whatever. I'm not sure on weights exactly, but carry around basically an extra small human being 
as a weight penalty in their car compared to their rivals. It's going to be hard. Well, yeah, except for he'd be critiquing the driver and and ruining their their confidence so they go even slower, too. Um, yeah, oh, you're absolutely right, by the way, about the uh, the visible difference when the cars are pulling at the pit stop. Uh, remarkable to see that at uh, Laguna Seca. Um, we'll bunch together another trio of questions. Uh, one from Brian Dawkins, uh, one from Douglas Holtzman, and from Chris Ward as well, all from Facebook. All around budgets, and in particular budgets around GTD. And Brian asks around the pending departure of several long-time gentlemen drivers and their teams. Does that shine the spotlight on the issue of costs again? And what can the series address that might have a big impact on reducing costs? Douglas, saying this one's aimed particularly at yourself, um, touched upon the costs of GTD, currently a sprint-only championship, endurance-only championship in the full season. You have as many chances as possible to fit it, uh, to pick a championship. What can IMSA do to lower GTD costs? And Chris says, actually, not, not far away from the same thing with Ben Keating moving to WC, although I think Ben also might well end up doing the endurance races. State of Magnus in flux. Is it time to consider lowering manufacturer fees in an effort to attract more traditional program lineups? I know the Indianapolis 8 hours isn't the biggest topic of discussion, but if they decided which version of the road course they're using, sorry, that's a different question. But let's go for the, um, the issue of cost first. What are you hearing from the paddock? Yeah. So I want to answer as much of this as I can. And when I say can, I'm referring to there are some things that I am not ready to talk about, write about. And as I continue to learn, Graham, and I guess I'm naive Mm -hmm. here, I do know that some of our rivals in the reporting space listen to our show and sometimes. Oh, really? Well, evening, Sean. Evening, Sean. uh, Um, mine some of the nuggets that we uh that we lay out here so it's yeah. strange how some of the things we discuss for the first time end up on other websites within about two hours of the show mm. mind. i don't know uh, Again, for them. but, but for them. here's the thing i'm t- i know this stuff secondhand more usually because as you know and as i say and this is true yeah, yeah. i really don't read uh i honestly i don't read no, daily don't. sports car that often and no, it's no, no, no disrespect I, it's just i kind of do i will smart man I just kind of stay in tune with what I know and what I'm working on, and I'm not trying to do the who wrote what and react. I'm not, sometimes no. I have to, but by and large, I just try and focus on what I do. Um, so I can't answer this as deeply as I'd like to. I do know that budget reduction for GTD is something IMSA must do for its own preservation as a series and primarily for the car count in GTD to remain viable. We know that next year's calendar is out. 2020 is done. We know what's happening there. Got it. I do believe until we have a change in global economics and just people are having more money come into their pockets or sponsors many of them who have left the sport or reduced their roles in the sport have a change of heart, Graham. Something changes to make sure that wealthy gentlemen, gentle women say, I can go do a full season of IMSA's Pro-Am GT class and afford it, and it won't risk my future, 
my kids are not going to have to go or not going to have to go to community college. They can go to proper university. I can do these things without being under financial threat. Until we get to that point in time, IMSA will need to downsize its calendar for GTD. That's just a practical reaction to what is happening in the marketplace. So with a number of drive, I mean, if we look at Ben Keating, you say, well, wait a minute. So a fairly big, well-known anchor point for Pro-Am drivers is leaving IMSA, but he's going to the WEC. So, I mean, that, right? He, it's just trading series. Well, true. He's just leaving one pro series for another pro series. The part that I don't think Ben has said a lot about, but he has said a little bit, is it's actually cheaper. There's a there's a cost <laughs> savings associated with doing this as well that is remarkable. Yep. And so I'm not picking on IMSA, not criticizing IMSA. Yep. I'm just simply talking about what this has cost going to all of these fantasy big endurance racing events. This is the thing that we worried about when the American Le Mans series and Grand Am came together in 2014. You had these classic events that being Watkins Glen and Daytona in terms of endurance that were Grand Ams. IMSA had Sebring and Petit Le Mans. If you think about both, individual championships graham we had a bunch of other great races but they had two endurance races per year and while budgets in the lms were certainly uh those were a thing man (laughs) you needed a real budget to play there uh it was only two call it big expensive races per year grand am much cheaper by design the cars dumb by comparison they still had the two big races of the year that were very costly compared to the others well you put these two series together you bolt the two big Enduros from one and the two from the other, and you put together, and now you have four. And if you look at the fact that in most of the classes on the calendar have 10 to 11 races, and all of them congregate for the most part, I'm talking this year, at all four of the big events, yep. it's just an expensive thing. So there's some adjustments for next year. We know that just coming back to a central point here, I believe what IMS is going to need to do to safeguard its series, uh, I'm sorry, safeguard the GTD class as we look to 21, I think this Sprint Cup is going to have to be the foundation of the class, period. I believe they need to make some of the other endurance races electives, just as they've done with uh, LMP2 for next year to try and save that class. Very smart. I think they're going to have to apply that same blueprint of If you're going to come race with us next year in this class, you need to sign up for the, quote, full season, which is actually a shortened season. If you commit to that, at least as I see how things should work, we will open the non-points opportunities if you do have the money to do Daytona, Sebring, whatever. If you have the money and want to play at those, great. But for the greater good of the class, you're going to commit to a full seven-race calendar call it the sprint race calendar for GTD. And if you really need to do Daytona or Sebring or Petite, then, and you have the, you can make the full commitment without jeopardizing your quote, full season sprint schedule we're offering for you now, then we'll open that door. 
but we're not going to require you to go to any of the endurance races. I just think that has to be the adjustment. And if the global budget scenario changes, then maybe add back those, add those back in as mandatory. And I'm going to save some of the other financial stuff. Yeah. That's going to be, that'll be written about for a different day. The, the deeper series related financials. Okay, we're going to uh, group last couple of uh, lots of questions for IMSA before we move on to uh, our friends with ACO Rules Racing. Uh, first of them is from John Richter on Twitter, and uh, John asks, will GTLM become a two-manufacturer class with just Porsche and Chevrolet? Certainly That's a con- concern. If we're talking just IMSA, we know, because we've spoken about this for a couple of years now, Graham, that BMW's practice is to not sign multi-year deals. BMW looks to put up its annual motorsport contract in IMSA, uh, put that up for review, for quote, for bid, and then looks through those quotes and decides which one to go with. They have chosen to go with and remain with Ray Hall, Letterman, Lanigan now for many, many years. BMW team RLL. The question I would say here is just timing and model. And I know this is coming back to a a very recent conversation we had on this show about we've seen in the past where when BMW has a true sport model that they will turn that into a GTLM vehicle or convert a GT3 cars they're doing right now to compete. Just curious where they are at. I have no information for you, but uh, curious where they are at on, okay, this M8 GTE. I love it, uh, but do you have something else in the works? Is there another model? Is there something that might replace it? And if not, yeah, at least in a reasonable time frame here, a couple next year or two, would you look to continue with the big girl and keep going? Or would you look to stand down for a year or two, which they've done in the past, while you wait for something to come online? Um, that, to me, is the overarching question. Uh, will they keep going with the MHGTE until a next model is identified? Or is there possibly something afoot internally that says, maybe we need to put all of, I shouldn't say all, the vast majority of our effort behind Formula er, Formula E and have that be the thing that is truly our global presence, knowing that obviously they have stepped away from the WEC uh, with their that very brief GTE Pro program. So I don't have an answer, but I do have, I think anyone should have a natural concern, Graham, of could this be Porsche versus Corvette, or will BMW uh-huh. decide to stick around uh, with a car that, while it was very competitive last weekend in Monterey, and has been very competitive at Monterey in the past. This has also not been a banner year for the MHGTE in IMSA's GTLM category. And again, I'm not sure if we point to BOP being the thing in the thing alone. Uh, if they have been adversely affected by uh, IMSA's BOPness, or if this is a case of development-wise. <laughs> of its yep. rivals, you know, finding more in off-season development that have allowed them to make a leap. It's often a combination of the two. But, yeah, um, if I was at BMW right now, I would be asking IMSA, what can we do? What can you do 
to make me comfortable and confident that if we return next year and the year after that with this car, that we're going to have a reasonable chance of winning a couple of times per year. Not asking for a championship, just need to be able to show that uh, this this vehicle can certainly be podium bound and you know, in serious contention for wins on a semi-regular basis. Obviously, peeling the Fords off of the grid next year, that's going to improve the odds, but BOP is a tricky thing as well. That can certainly, you know, you could have, <laughs> you could have four cars on the grid and still be struggling to get on the podium if the BOP isn't your friend. So that's, that's the general area I'd be asking for some sort of a surety and assuredness uh, to make sure that there's a reason to come back. Uh, final set of questions revolves around the silly season for drivers. And, of course, there were a number of stories around at the weekend. I know you were one of the very first to get to this one. I know you've been sitting on it for a while about the uh, changes coming at Corvette Racing MP with it looking like Jan Magnussen is coming to the end of his Corvette career and Jordan Taylor potentially stepping into a full-time drive in what we presume will be the new C8R. Yeah, yeah. This has been a little bit of a, from what I understand, just a little bit sad. Yeah. Uh, We've alluded to such things on the show in recent months. Uh, What I've been hearing throughout the summer, and we're obviously not revealing sources, I can tell you that a lot of what I've heard, the vast majority of what I've heard has all come from drivers, knowing that drivers obviously are talking to teams, trying to get a feel for what might be open, what what might not been hearing for a decent portion of the summer that Jordan Taylor was headed to Corvette heard that it wasn't done still hearing it's not done truly I mean we're recording this Monday the 16th of September Uh, I have it on pretty good authority there's nothing signed I think that's why for those who noticed maybe a difference in headlines and how things were written had one listener mentioned something that was very nice uh, via DM Graham uh, because the at least for the, the tone of what I wrote, what you all wrote was, could this happen? Might this happen? Very strong possibility it's going to happen. Uh, I would be surprised if it didn't. But there is truly, to my knowledge, nothing signed for Jordan. Expect it to happen. Expect signature. I would, again, I think this is all very much down the road. But um, others maybe painted it as a done deal. But had been hearing this for quite some time. Had also heard that Yan could be stood down at the end of the year. And I don't have, I've just again, hearing, not saying that I have on the record anything about that. But if I just want to throw in quickly here to answer this one, heard rumblings now for a year or two that Yan might be you know, looking at a end date on the full time career. I don't know if a victory tour celebration tour farewell tours the right way to phrase things graham but i've just heard that yeah and the man might be saying okay you know i'm in my mid-40s been doing this for a long time kids doing well on f1 maybe it's you know it wouldn't be a bad thing here to look at winding things down in the very near future could that you know uh, part of me thought that might have been last year um part of me thought it could be this year it could be next who knows at least from chatter in the paddock. 
this definite feeling that a do expect Jordan to sign and to be with Corvette racing next year was under the belief Graham feet just feeling wise that Yan might've been looking to next season as the farewell tour, which I believe he deserves, right? What he's been with that team. Uh, He's been with that team for more than 1953. Yeah. More than half of Jordan's life, for example. I mean, just right. So just thinking of all that that guy is due, he is, he's the most Corvette racing driver of all the Corvette racing drivers in action. Um, he deserves all the accolades, all thousands of words written praise and just everything. It would be awesome to see him receive that next year, call it the service and duty to the brand being returned. I think again, just chatter. I think that might've been what he had in his mind or was hoping for. I believe something bad went down in June, June, in and around Lamar, I think Lamar was just a really, it was a bad event for the team, for the brand. I think that might have just solidified, God, we got to change up some stuff. And I think there might have been a, okay, need to do this now. New car coming. Let's just try and freshen things up a bit overall. And so I think, I don't know if Yan will ever talk about it. Who knows? But I just have a feeling, Graham, that what Yan was hoping for was a final year next year, say farewell properly, ride into the sunset on his own terms. And at least it sounds like this uh, end of his tenure with Corvette might be something that was not uh, his decision. So the team has not confirmed it. Uh, I mean, I'm confident in saying I believe this is what is going to happen both with Jordan signing and Yan uh, no longer in a full-time role. I don't know if he's going to be in a part-time role either. In terms of just rumblings, rumors, and whatnot, uh, heard some some things that, hey, maybe, the, maybe he could be back at Daytona or NAEC role or who knows, some sort of send-off. I hope that happens. Uh, I just hope that happens because he deserves it. And that guy has been such a rallying point, Graham, for sports car racing in the U.S., going back to his freaking Panos LMP1 mm. Roadster days. Beloved Action guy. Preps. Fans love him. If you are Danish, hell, if you're even Dutch, because most people, you know, call him Dutch. I know I've done it. I've written it more than once. Um, you know, just in general, uh, a rallying person in the paddock among european fans and american fans have taken to him he's a hilarious guy and the hardest of hardcore racers so you don't you don't lose a guy like that without it just dialing down the overall quality and joy in the paddock so i hope when we're talking about the rolex 24 next year the new corvette c8r's debuting and such i hope we hear something about yan the man uh getting to turn laps and or compete and have some sort of send-off that kind of sort of falls in line with what i've heard he might want 
Uh, I'm just going to chuck one more uh, thing in before I just uh, answer a very quick question about um, an IMSA point before we move on. And that is, of course, if that happens, when that happens, uh, that then leaves us with silly season stuff following on behind. And we've seen paddock rumours about uh, what will happen around Jordan Taylor's uh, seats at Wayne Taylor Racing. Who will that be? Might that be Ryan Briscoe? Obviously, there's four Chip Ganassi Racing drivers uh, displaced. What will happen with the likes of Richard Westbrook? Anything we can actually say with any degree of certainty, guesstimation, what can we say? A lot of the time that I spent in the paddock at Monterey, Graham was speaking with drivers, many of whom are the ones whose programs are set to stop at the end of the year. It was a depressing, depressing atmosphere. Uh, All but very few have something. So I, I believe we had a question, a direct question of, hey, there's a rumor that Ryan Briscoe could backfill Jordan Taylor at Wayne Taylor yep. Racing. Is there could there be anything to that? This is just one of those things that not everybody knows because not everybody, you know, some folks are truly sports car fans of three months, one month, who knows? I mean, there's a whole lot to learn the back history and who does what. Um little factoid for those who weren't aware, there are two people who manage Ryan Briscoe and have been his longtime managers back to his days at Team Penske and IndyCar. So this would have been late 2000s. Those two people, Wayne Taylor, Max Angelelli, the co-owners of Wayne Taylor Racing. Could Ryan Briscoe backfill Jordan Taylor at Wayne Taylor Racing? I believe if he were to talk to his managers, they might know who to speak with at the team to possibly make that happen. So all cheekiness aside, um, there's a high degree of confidence that Ryan is the one driver in the four full-timers at Ford Chip Ganassi Racing and then also lumping in Colin Brown from Core Autosport and lumping in Andy Lally from Magnus Racing. Of those six, Briscoe is the only one that I know of and have heard is going to land on his feet and be just fine in terms of full-time employment next year. Uh, So, yes, I would be very surprised if Ryan's name is not on a contract already there. But, again, just a guess. But I know his managers might be able to help him there would say after that the only driver i've heard of who might have a little bit of something and we're talking naec might be joey hand uh as for the rest there's a lot of folks with options some who have nothing it was really depressing talking to our pal richard westbrook i mean (laughs) if yeah westies westie has a very open calendar next year uh spend time with our pal Dirk Mueller, Dirk, wide open calendar next year. You know, should would we expect to see him at, you know, the N24 or something uh, German? Sure, of course. But uh, as of right now, I've heard of nothing. Andy Lally, to my knowledge, got nothing. I mean, this is ridiculous. Um, Colin Brown, I mentioned earlier, I've heard of some good options in all three classes. So I think he's going to find something. 
But yeah, bottom line is this is a very bad time to be a professional driver looking for work in IMSA. And I mentioned this in my uh, story, hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. Also hashtag <laughs> who gives a crap uh, that Felipe Nazar and Pipo Durrani are returning next year to Action Express in the number 31 Cadillac. I mentioned at the end of that story that budgeting for the number five car, I guess what I would call the true Action Express car, knowing that the number 31 is Sonny Whelan's entry since they merged teams. That's Sonny's car. He funds that. The number five car, the number five Cadillac driven by Joao Barbosa and Felipe Albuquerque, that's one that does not have any confirmation coming yet. Uh, Drivers, season, you name it, and it's because they are indeed looking hard for the budget to complete that. So, What should be said? Should be said, MP, that actually, I mean, albeit after you'd written the story, the official press release even says that for the number five car. So there is a, certainly a more than a hint that uh, there are deals to be done and that are not yet done for the number five car. So that's certainly a concern. Yeah, Joao, who is, you know, it's, let's say it's it's fair to say somewhat in the twilight of his career. Um, it's a big question for him. That another monster who I just want to see driving forever. And then his young teammate, Albuquerque, good Lord. I mean that at no point in time should that kid ever be wondering when his, uh, where, when and where he'll be driving. But yeah, it, it's, this is a, not a great time in terms of downsizing Graham costs mm-hmm. certainly come into play in some areas. We certainly haven't had confirmation from Magnus Racing that they're shutting down. But as we've spoken and written about, we know the crew and driver in Andy have been told you need to look for work next year. We know that Ben Keating's moving on. We know that the uh, Robinson family is backfilling that. So that's good there. But we definitely know, uh, at least on the driver side, on the core side, this is just one of those things where I don't know if it's been written or reported somewhere else, but it's, if it hasn't, uh, I was happy to hear that while Core's Nissan Onrock DPI program is shutting down, they are not shutting down employment for the crew members on that car. They will be absorbed into the factory Porsche program and I'm sure other aspects of John's businesses. They have a composite business. I mean, a lot of good things going on. So while racing programs done, uh, crew members are not. Uh, so it's just uh, effectively uh, the the pro drivers and the race engineer uh, or the engineering staff that are not staying on. But, yeah, elsewhere, just to close quickly, it's just a case of, um, I think I mentioned this to DSC's Ryan Kish, who was, uh, shared my little room with me last weekend. We have the equivalent of a two-car factory team of drivers roaming the paddock searching for the same one or two seats that are truly available. It's just brutally unfortunate to watch. I think, you know, there's there's one point I'll make here, and it's it's to address our listeners. You know, the marketplace of the internet is a great place for rumor and speculation. And um, one of the things I know that we've talked about on the show before, Marshall, is this, uh, this tendency in this day and age to take sides 
there's no winners in a situation where the global economy and the state of the automotive industry is putting programs like this in jeopardy. And it's not them and us. It's all us. These are guys that could just as easily find themselves in action in Europe. They could just as easily find themselves in action in the WEC. And let's hope that they do find that opportunity there. And let's hope we can end up with two, three, four hugely healthy continental global international championships. That's what it needs. I can answer one very quick question to end up our IMSA um, uh, Kabbalah questions. It comes from Joe Van Gallen on Facebook who says, is Rick Ware Racing real? Is the Rick Ware Racing a legit thing for LMP2 and IMSA in 2020? I've read some, he says, vague reporting about it. Right. Um, I'll tell you what I know. This is the uh, sometime NASCAR efforts coming to the Asia Le Mans series with some LMP2 AM efforts and a uh, mentioned LMP2 efforts in IMSA. I'll tell you what I know. There will be more to tell you in a few days' time. The uh, first of what I presume to be at this stage two LMP2 AM at Ligier shut down this week. Uh, in fact, sorry, last week rather on the runway at Le Mans because that's the closest thing to the Ligier outpost at Le Mans La Techno Park. Um, and I will be speaking to a couple of the principals from Rickware Racing about that effort uh, later this week. As for the LMP2 effort in IMSA, the answer is yes, real. I've spoken to a number of people involved in that. It is right. Whatever you've re read, I know on some social media, and you've seen some pictures of the X-Bar 1 car, the Multimatic, Riley Multimatic chassis on uh, Hauler. Uh, I do believe that uh, at least someone uh, aligned to the team has acquired that car. However, it may not be the car they end up running in IMSA if that program comes to fruition. So as I say, hope to bring you more, which we'll share with you through DSC and through Racer as soon as we've got that. Um, and you can guarantee that before I get to that conversation at the end of the week, someone will have heard me saying that and there'll be a snippet somewhere else. There you go. That's that. We're on to Weckhaslam's Elmzako. Is this the part where I ask you the questions? Oh, I love this part. This is my favorite. <laughs> it, is. <laughs> it is. It is. Brother, I speak enough each week to where I'm sure like our listeners, I get tired of hearing my damn voice. So I just get to serve these suckers up and shut back. Shut, shut back. That's, that's, that's good. I just I I truly, I need to switch from uh, from leaded vodka to unleaded. That's really going to help it's, my week. It's all, these, it's all these weeks of just having the cat to talk to. That's what it is. That's what it is. It all gets better <sighs> It, 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 you, you don't even want to know. They've gone on strike. They want more kibble. We're having to negotiate. <laughs> we're, uh, we're we're dealing with 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 Roxit. Rocky is trying to a uh, no deal. Roxit is what I'm currently trying to deal with right here. Rosie's negotiating it. Oh, I'm telling you, it, it's it's not going well. Uh, the Parliament of Food has been asked to shut down. So yeah, it, it's falling yep. apart. All right, let's get going with Weck. Aslam Elms Aco, also known as WC Asian Le Mans Series Elms and the Aco. This comes from Stephen Gate on the good old tweeters. Brabham have stated that they are now considering the hypercar category given their recent announcement of their type with Goodyear. If hypercar goes with a single tire manufacturer and it's Michelin, will this sway Brabham towards staying with the original plan of GTE? 
Um, interesting. Right, let me tell you what's going on with tyres before we go into... I mean, number one, the hypercar will be single-tyre formula. And it is my uh, understanding that so will every other class in uh, the WEC. And by attachment, that likely means that will carry on down to the ELMS. My other understanding is that the current proposal would be that uh, whoever actually gets the contract to supply hypercar... Uh, and that at the moment is definitely between two manufacturers, tyre manufacturers, Michelin and Goodyear. There is a third manufacturer in the wings, I believe, but the uh, principal targets here are those two. That that manufacturer would likely also get LMP2 in the ELMS and in the uh, WEC, with the other manufacturer effectively then going for both GTE classes, which, by the way, I believe is that that would uh, also add on LMP3 for the MS. So we are heading towards an era of single-time manufacturer. We've already got that for a couple of the classes in the ELMS, um, and it's a bit of a commercial battle. No presumptions should be made, by the way, that it's definitely going to Michelin, or it might go here, it might go there. I gather strong bids from both manufacturers across the board, but certainly my understanding is that the ACO uh, wish there to be more than one tyre supplier across the board, and that would be a sensible way to go for it. As for Brabham, um, well, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, but my guess would be if your business case uh, revolves around hypercar, then unless the tyre partner is actually making a substantial financial contribution to your business plan, then it would be the tyre partner that would go left field rather than your car. So my guess would be, and I've not spoken to David or his backers about this, but it would be their plan to do with the car that would take precedence. I don't think it would be the fact that Goodyear would be with it that would maybe be the determining factor about which way that program goes. Moving on to Rebellion next from Mate Pimper, and I probably murdered at least your first name. Why is Rebellion allowed to have a car Number one, when they haven't won any championship last year. So I think they're referring to car numbers here. Uh, I understand that they want to have number one and number three in form 13, as in the R13 chassis. But still, if they really want the number 13, why don't they just enter one full season for the car number 13? Uh, it's a very good question. I don't know in this instance. Uh, I have to say, I think this is the second time you've sent us the question. Is it Matesh or, or Matesh or whatever it is? But Matesh, whatever the uh, the name is, apologies if we're mangling it. I can I can tell you this much. It will have been done by negotiation because first refusal on the number one would cert- most certainly have been for Toyota. Toyota may have decided that they wanted to stick with what they'd actually got uh, for this season so i'll tell you what i'll do i will ask the question when i see the guys in fuji and we'll see what they tell us pretty obviously we've only got the number one now because the number three is not a full season car and i don't think we're going to see the number three car back before spa in the may of next year i mean it'd really complicate things if they entered the number three and then the number one separately as well because then you'd have 31 i mean uh, it's just it's terrible yes uh graham this comes in from Matt Hawkins. Where do you think the WC should go to make the Silverstone season opener more attractive? So you've seen comments about how they weren't fans of the four-hour format. Do you think they'll revert to six? Maybe, who knows, go to nine? Me personally, hashtag me personally, good on you for Matt, uh, for that, Matt. I'd like it longer than six. 
I think it's going to be an interesting one. I mean, I'd make no mistake, I think they're aware there's been criticism. I think some of the criticism, to be honest with you, has been rather overvoiced. I have to say, I thought the four-hour format was actually quite fun for the change. I understand if that's the one thing you're going to go and see for your WEC dose of the year and you've lost out on two hours of racing. I completely get it. But not I certainly don't see it as being the utter I'm-not-going-to-turn-up disaster that some would imply. Um, I think the good news here, and it is good news, is that they've had their head turned to look at different formats, different race formats, uh, races into darkness, all of that, etc. I think it's going to be interesting. They're pretty clearly focusing now, MP and the WEC, in a period where we're transitioning into a completely new rule set, into sort of reinventing themselves. The experiment experiment that was uh, Sebring has been successful. They're looking at uh, four, six, eight-hour races this season. Uh, I think we're going to see other formats uh, certainly talked about, and my guess would be that they'll take a risk here and there. What would I like to see? I'd like to see not having to cover Silverstone in both paddocks for Daily Sports Car, for starters, because I know uh, your, your friend of mine, your colleague of mine, uh, Stephen Kilby, hates it with a passion, and I don't blame him. It is a nightmare of a race meeting to be involved with both paddocks. Uh, but would I like to see it shaken up? Yes. Uh, would I mind if it changed back to six hours? Not, not at all. Would I like to see it go into dusk? That might be fun. Uh, but... Uh, certainly, it did seem to me that this year that the number of people there was somewhat down on last. All righty, we shall go to Damien Peachman, who says, Graham, with Goodyear right. now providing tires to the WC, the Asian Le Mans series and the European Le Mans series have to race on Goodyear, or can they race on their regular Dunlops? Right, the interesting one is going to come, of course, at the Le Mans 24 Hours uh, next year, and I don't know the answer to that one. Uh, Asia Le Mans Series is simple. Asia Le Mans Series, uh, as a partner, has Michelin. So all cars run on Michelin rubber in the Asia Le Mans Series in all classes. Uh, ELMS continues with Dunlop. In fact, in the GT class, it is a Dunlop spec tyre, uh, and the uh, cars in LMP2 that run on, Dun on, on non-Michelins are on Dunlop tyres. The interesting part is going to be what happens in terms of what uh, teams can um, opt for, what will be available to them at the Le Mans 24 Hours next year. And that's a question we will bring the answer to you. But it's a good question. Good question. Might be able yeah. to answer this one quickly for our pal Kevin Perez Frederico from Facebook. Says, hey, guys, any word if Honda or HPD is interested in hypercar? Says HPD was interested in LMP1 motor supply with a reworked IndyCar motor. HPD is probably now too busy and most of its budget focused on DPI and Penske and IMSA. Uh, let's see. Uh, I'll just go leave it there. To my knowledge, Kevin, I think your budget point, not just DPI and Penske, but just in general, every manufacturer just about has some sort of story privately of being asked to take a 10% haircut on budget yep. for next year. And I would say that HPD is no different. Every, almost every auto manufacturer seems to be in the mindset of, yeah, racing's cool. We'd still like to do it. How do we take more money out of what we spend though? And where that gets interesting, as you well know, Graham, is it's 
one thing when it's the first time hey we need to take 10 percent out of next year's budget what can we cut and you go okay well we got a couple little passion projects or you know we're trying to help this team over here a little bit we're trying okay there's a couple of of there's a little bit of fat on the budget not a lot but okay we you know it's not going to make us happy we're going to have some grumpy folks but we can get that 10 percent when they come back the next year and say hey by the way need another 10 percent you go all right are we gonna have to get rid of good old fred who's been over there and maybe he's not as big a contributor as he once was uh, in his department but yeah i mean that that's a hundred and whatever thousand dollar salary and okay well we do have i'm making up a number you know three truck drivers to help with things on various weekends to take our technical support transporters well Maybe we need to get down to two. Do we need two transporters? Can we just cut? Okay, hospitality. Uh, instead of sending the hospitality unit to every race, can we just do select? And you start going, okay, they're, they're, technically those aren't pure competition things, but all right, there's going to be some human capital loss here and some other things, but we can get, begrudgingly, we can get you your 10%. When they come back the third year, Kev, in the fourth asking for that same 10 percent which is i think where we're at with some manufacturers now that's where things start to get really tough because you start to have to question continued participation in various series Uh, all right we're gonna stop going and doing this race uh or we're gonna have less cars here we're gonna supply fewer of those can we do we have to do a hiring freeze um whatever it is there's a we okay we sponsored a race or two or three or whatever trying to be good citizens of the paddock we're having to cut all these things just to still stay in the series uh we were going to do four commercials television commercials now we're only going to do one once you you know you start cutting out these things and you start getting down to just bodies and metal parts or composite parts after two, three years of that 10% haircut, you are just having to do some things where you go, this is going to fundamentally alter who we are and make us yep. worse. And so and, and actually, it's a return on investment that goes. I mean, I can remember, Marshall, someone talking in a, the same kind of thing about commercial efficiency and gave me an example that has stayed with me forever, not least because it's quite a haunting mental image. And it was an athlete basically trying to make themselves more aerodynamic by taking away limbs. And then guess what happens once you've done that to make yourself more aerodynamic? You can't run anymore. And it's efficiency is a, is a kind of a abused word, I'm afraid, uh, in management terms. Efficiency means cuts. And it's a matter of what do you want at the end results of your program? Do you want there to be an R&D benefit? Do you want there to be a return on investment in terms of the marketing hits? What is it you're looking for rather than what am I spending? Uh, and unfortunately, I'm afraid we're in a world now where that's t- that kind of formula goes in one direction and one direction only. So this just comes back to the central point, Kevin, that I know Honda, like many other brands, have asked their racing departments to cut, cut, cut. And so the time where they were interested in being an LMP1 engine supplier, that was seen as a profit center. And I think there would have been group buy-in that it's going to cost money to do this and get this going, but we believe we can make money back. I think that ship sailed a long time ago. So 
can't i if it were to happen i think we're talking honda japan deciding to do that totally independent of hpd let's go to daniel peters says graham do you think aston martin will only use their drivers in the hypercar program or look at any of the x bmw or four drivers any idea on who the test drivers might be hashtag me personally would use that matthias lauda guy uh since he's not in the am car in the whack Okay, uh, let's address the Matt uh, part first. Uh, I love Matt. Matt's a lovely, lovely guy. But there is one reason and one reason only why he's not the 98 car, and that will have been done on data. That means he's not going to be as quick as the likes of Ross Gunn and uh, Darren Turner. So sadly, I'm afraid you're barking up the wrong tree there. This refers to the Aston Martin Valkyrie coming uh, force cars set to be built by Multimatic. We don't yet know who's going to run those cars. Um, I think there's a couple of potential takers. Plus, and with absolute credit to uh, Gary Watkins from Autosports for getting a little bit more information out from the R Motorsport guys at a press event last week that looks like they're targeting a further two cars uh, from the Aston Martin Valkyrie hypercar program. So potentially four cars. It might be more. Uh, let's wait and see what actually happens there. So they, the answer there is there's a whole lot of different areas that you might see drivers coming from. You've got Aston Martin racing with their GTE, uh, current GTE drivers. They've also, by the way, maintained that they will continue their GTE program. So it shouldn't be a given that those people will necessarily move up. You've got a second group of people. Um, Multimatic are building those cars. Multimatic have a very packed Rolodex indeed of driver names, and we've been talking about a few of them stateside as well with the Chip Ganassi racing side um, that potentially could find a way into those cars. You've got the R Motorsports family, and they've got some very talented young guns there. And then you've got the other part of this uh, this. Uh, puzzle. Not that they're a financial partner in it, but certainly have been a technical partner in it, and that's Red Bull Racing. And bear in mind, not only have you got the F1 side of things, but also their junior program with a huge number of talented people. Don't make any decisions yet that it will definitely be insert name of Aston Martin Racing Driver because you might well be a long way from it. A lot more to emerge about these programs yet. Uh, but I am hearing much more encouraging signs about the health of that program after some rumours fairly recently that things were going a little awry. Um, one thing I'd say, by the way, about Aston Martin, there's been a few stories around about you know whether or not programmes are at risk because of share price, etc., etc. Spoke to someone extremely senior at Aston Martin fairly recently, within the last few days, and they said, yep, and we completely understand why people are making making those conclusions, putting one and one together and making what they believe is two. It ignores one thing. Aston Martin, whatever the share price is right now, will be a profitable company at the end of this trading year. Got about 20 minutes left for this episode, yeah. Graham, before I have to leave Let's and go rip tend on through some family things. So I'm going to throw one or two more Weck Aslam Elms Echoes at you. And then let's get to a couple of Hagenaral and funds yeah. and say goodbye. Yeah. Uh, let's go to Sean Crockett. Says Avassis once or twice before. As there's a road car option in hypercar, does this mean that the engine cover fin is no longer compulsory? Sean says I, I have to it's... have to admit that hashtag me personally have never been a fan of the fin. And while I'm not an expert, uh, thought reducing the front overhang be much better way of preventing mercedes style aerobatic displays 
we'll just throw uh, in here, Graham and Sean, that I would be surprised if many of the same open venting atop all four tires, fender wells, we could just call it that, and some form of fin for the things that they have shown help control blowovers and such. I'll be yep. very surprised if those are not compulsory uh, in hypercar, if not all of them, the majority of the things that have been uh, they, done. They will be. There's no doubt. Remember, it's not about blowover. It's about a lateral movement. It's about if the car gets square on, it basically effectively, in real shorthand, it raises the speed at which the car will lift off that's what it does and it's been shown a number of times to be pretty effective in that um and the other thing about the hypercars you said about road car the, the key phrase here is not road car it's road car based that's the really key phrase so it will not be a road car it will be based on a road car but with the safety enhancements that are required and i absolutely expect that that fin will be there let's close for now with weck asm elms aco and if we didn't get your question and you want it answered, just as Sean has done, please send it in. This comes from Sean Crockett, because we're trying to make up again, knowing that we didn't get to his previous question. He says, as we move towards transition to hypercar, how do you think the ACO would respond if Toyota or Aston Martin requested a chance to run their new car as a non-points scoring guest at one of the later events this season? He says he suspects Le Mans would be a no-no, but what about Spa in May, for example? I would have thought okay. it could be an attractive proposition to both the entrant and the ACO. Uh, any thoughts? Uh, yeah, I think it's a perfectly good question. I think uh, you've asked the wrong question. Um, I think if both of them asked, then there'd be a prospect. I think if one of them did, it would be a straight no. Uh, I would expect that the ACO might be putting pressure to see whether or not one or both of those cars can be demonstrated at Le Mans uh, next year, because that would be the right place to actually show the cars off. Um, but I think if both were ready for May and that came from both, then that might be a very different answer. But my guess would be that they'd be far more interested in showing off those cars at their marquee event in June as a precursor to the season following. Remember, you know, there's likely to be a prologue event, so there will be a test, a public test, where people can see those cars. But good question. Um, certainly if one came forward and the other weren't ready, I think the answer would be a straight no. If both came forward and said, we've got a car apiece, then that might be quite an interesting question. But remember, these are not standalone events. These are world championship races. The FIA has a say as well. You get a crooked answer then, not a straight answer then. Nah. All right, we are going to close with 15 minutes of general and fun. And I will launch this off with two First one okay. from Hank Podzmek, who says, is anyone going to write a book about Peter Gregg? He says, I know Hurley Haywood's book talks about him, but it seems like a great story untold. I do not know, Hank, of a dedicated Peter Gregg book, but I have it on fairly good authority that the good folk, Sean Cridland, being one of them who penned the Hurley autobiography or biography, whatever, auto somethingography, do know that they've been asked to do one on Brumos, the Brumos racing team, of which Peter was the foundational aspect. So 
don't know if it's it won't be a dedicated greg book but i think you're going to get lots of peter greg in it because he was truly um the central player in making that happen got our second question jacob bame graham with the upcoming and i realize we're recording this a little bit late with the upcoming yeah. 300th race of the british gt what is your fondest memory oh. from its paddock over the years oh so 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 many um it was that was the one where malcolm cracknell um our founding editor and my very very good friend uh gave me the opportunity to cut my reporting teeth and i looked after daily sports cars uh british gt coverage in whole or in part from about 2000 for better part of half a decade with my colleague mark housen and had a just a brilliant time um Lots of memories, but the one that I think is a defining memory, uh, I may have told this story before on the weekend sports cars, and if I have, I apologize, was 2002, the British GT Media Day, and indeed it was the very first UK event for daily sports car, and we were, myself and Malcolm, patrolling the paddock in the pit lane. Uh, it was the genesis of the TVR Tuscan R, as it was then, later the T400R. And we had this new website we were trying to get people acquainted with, Daily Sports Car. Um, and there was a car missing, a team called Eclipse Motorsports. And uh, chatting away there, and they said, the car's a little late. It's just arriving. We've got a real problem. We've just lost a sponsor. Um, and we're struggling to actually get this this show on the road. And as we were talking, up the pit lane at Silverstone, the old national pits, came a quad bike with the most orange thing I've ever seen in my life. There are, you know, there are small suns out there in the galaxy that have actually got uh, less orange in them than this car had. And a deal was done there and then by myself, Malcolm, and the two team principals that that car would run all year with full daily sports car livery. Um, and a bit of a legend was born. Um, I love that car more than words can say. I'm looking at a press clipping of that car on my wall here in the office as you know we record the show. That, for me, that was a special moment. That was when we knew we were going to do this thing with Daily Sports Car, and here we are, better part of 20 years later, uh, still going strong. Well, since I'm a fan of hoisting things over the fence and hoping that they hit you, I will continue that, and let's see. Why don't I take da, da, da. all right? Here's one from Pete Hernandez. SRO question for you guys: okay. Why doesn't the SRO use a combined GT3 and GT4 grid for their North American series? I've watched a few of the British GT series races on YouTube and love the mixed grids because you really get a great appreciation of the speed of the GT3 cars. It's also great to see the GT3 cars have to navigate their way through the slower traffic. It would also help pad the size of the grids, which have been on the small side. So we're talking about the American blank pain face, blank, blank face pain stare. Yep. I think series, something like that. Uh, I'll, I'll answer very quickly. It works very well in British GT, but one of the things I like about international sports car racing and, and GT racing is there are remarkably few championships that run with the same class structure. Remarkably few. Uh, but it, it's certainly the case that SRO 
it's unusual for them to run GT3 and GT4 cars on the same grid nowadays. British GT is one of the very few that still remain. But, you know, if we got to the stage on your side of the pond, MP, that numbers became a big problem for SR America, I'd certainly be in, uh, one to endorse that as a, as a potential solution because it does make for great racing. We have a fantastic race for the end of the season at uh, Donington Park in British GT th- uh, just yesterday. My cat Rocky, by the way, is actively jumping up and down on the desk, walking in just right behind the microphone, doing as he's done on the weekend IndyCar recordings of late by putting his ass in my face. All is a way to suggest now at one o four p.m., knowing that their feed time is three p.m., that I should move it up a little bit. Uh, he's a persistent little fart. Not as bad as Christoph Bushu, but he he oh, no. can be a little terror. On the uh, tr- he, this little track he's fashioned of going around and around and around to get me to stop and feed him, it, it's it's good. Uh, let's see where yeah. else. We're still talking Rocky, not Christoph. Uh, tell me, tell me, Christoph Bushu is not on your desk with his ass in your face. Yes, Please. look, I, I'll deal with the as long as Rocky is talking about putting his ass in my face, and we're not having any hashtag bo penis moments. So, okay, um, we've got 10 minutes left, Mr. Goodwin. Where shall we go to entertain or disappoint our listeners? I think we're going to crack on through some of the fun stuff, aren't we? Um, Sean Crockett. I know Jaguar used to drive their C and D types to Le Mans in the 50s, but what was the last car to be driven to the circuit to compete and the last winning car to do so? I can think of a couple, and it immediately springs to mind. I hope you can, because I have no idea, as we, I think, read Sean's third question. Yeah. Uh, Well, uh, let me give you the two that I can remember. Uh, I think I'm right, and it was, I think, the second year that Radio Le Mans did live coverage of the Nürburgring 24 hours. And I seem to remember a Kia, and I think it was a Proceed hatchback, driving as a Continental Tire promo event from Italy, 900 to 1,000 kilometers (laughs) to the track, doing the race and driving back again on the tires that finished the race. I think that's right. Uh, Two years later than that, in 2010, I absolutely remember that... uh, well, bless them, Team LNT um, from Garforth uh, entered a then brand new Genetta G40, pretty little car, a little coupe that's still in service with various championships and various guises today. Drove it from Yorkshire to Silverstone, took part in and won their class in the 2010 Brick Car 24 Hours and then drove the car home. They're the last two I can remember at that kind of level. I am sure there are more. I will say this, I am aware of a program that's coming together and it's very exciting and I can't say a single word about it. About a program that would be driving their cars to the track? Yep. Wow, I love it. Where right. shall we go from here? Uh, Brett Ross asks you and myself, uh, if you were to bring back one sports car series that's no longer running, which one would you pick? I guess you'd also have to say, bring it back with a viable grid. Hmm. Uh, uh, Brett Balisay says he'd bring back the Emerson of Firestone Firehawk series. That's a lot of fire. Yeah, yeah that's, uh, that's a good call there. I, I'm and Rocky is just back. Thanks, buddy. I mean, 
I guess as far as cats and asses, you've got to find one, baby. Um, he's Fuck just, her up. And now he just sits here and stares at me. It's the best thing. Um, I My initial thought, Brett, was I guess the Coney Challenge series with the oh. precursor to what we have today with the Michelin Pilot Challenge. Before that, the Continental Tire Series. I think before that, and I'm, I could be totally brain farting on naming conventions, but I'll just say the mid to late 2000s version of what we have today, where there was no GT4, no TCR, no anything that was, for the most part, had anything to do with manufacturer production lines, uh, preset international super spec formula it was i want to go race in a sedan or gt but not a crazy gt it, it would often have a v8 uh in it but i want to go racing and i am a tuner aftermarket type person have a shop have a something and i'm gonna go buy whatever it is off of the showroom floor that fits this it could be a Subaru WRX STI. It could be a Corvette, possibly, just a straight production Corvette. It could be a Kia, a Hyundai. It could be all kinds of things. Hondas, Acuras, um, could be Porsche, something or other. I'm going to bend, weld, and install a roll cage in the thing. I'm going to do a variety of modifications in the name of safety and performance but it is by and large production-based racing with vehicles built out of independent shops and let's go race like heck and have a blast Uh, that's the thing that is we're going to look back on here fondly in just a few more years as being uh truly a dinosaur something in the past something that has died altogether so i have a fondness for that era of that would also just say going farther back imsa's old international sedan series so the firehawk series that he refers to graham very very strict showroom stock type racing put a roll cage in it put in a fire bottle maybe we'll let you put some uh, wheel studs on the thing to make tire changes faster but for the most part these are pretty darn stock vehicles endurance racing format 24 hours and such quite often there was a short sprint format called the International Sedan Series. It's where Acura, obviously being Honda's North American, call it luxury performance brand, that's where they got their start in pro racing with CompTech. Uh, around 86, I believe, 85, 86. But it was just Mazda 3s. And I think there was a Mercedes 190E. That was kind of the exotic car, but it was an Acura Integra. And a lot of smaller, call it just little four-banger things, and they beat the living poop out of each other. Um, it, it was it was you know the reference of it being a a blanket party because the, all the the best cars there was always a cluster that were so close you could just throw a blanket over them and cover all of them. I have real affinity for the old international sedan series for just these little poop boxes, not a lot of power, but just being driven to within an inch of their lives by some very talented folks as well. That's the one I'd probably bring back. 
Um, mine's informed by actually some late night TV viewing uh, here just a couple of evenings ago. Finished up um, a piece for Delhi Sports Car and then actually just turned on the TV to have a late night uh, snack. And what was showing, uh, but I'd never seen it before, the McLaren documentary. And if you haven't seen it, I heartily recommend it. And uh, Can-Am, end of story. Can-Am, if you could reinvent that and turn the clock back. Um, you know, it predates my uh, involvement in the sports, uh, certainly consciously, and some just amazing cars, amazing spectacle. And yes, I know that, uh, you know, uh, race after race after race, the same two, three cars would run away with it, but just a very different outlook and attitude on the sport. And if we could recreate that in the same spirit, uh, I think that would be something pretty spectacular. As I say, if you get the chance to see that, I know it's showing now on some cable channels, hugely emotional ending, of course, to that. And we all know the way that that story turned out, but uh, uh, really good piece of TV. We one more? T- or we, do- we have one time for one more question. I'm about to be eaten by my cat if I don't stop soon. So... <laughs> Uh, we're going to go for the best race that should not have been. James Counter from Facebook says, what's the best race you've seen which shouldn't have been? He says he went to watch the DTM, was treated to the greatest original minis race, which had everything, including ending with a red flag for a mini upside down in the paddock gravel. What's your I'm going to answer this. Yeah, please. I'm going to go I, for it. I have one to it's, offer, and it's the same, and that's 2008 right. Petit Le Mans, where... Uh, McNish crashed on the opening lap or on the, oh, on yeah, the yeah, recce yeah. actually and Peugeot should have walked away and it turned into a 10 hour contest of how the hell did you come back and win but I've cited that far too many times mine literally couldn't be further from the Petit Le Mans uh, 2008 it came some years ago at Bahrain it was one of the support races for the FIWC it was a local two litre sedan race I think I'm right. The original entry was something like eight cars. By the time we got to race two, I think we were down to four. The rest of them had wiped out. Uh, It might have been five. Um, And of those five, all of them hit the barrier at some point. Two of them lost wheels. um, And we ended up with two cars finishing on the same lap. Now, this was a lap that I think I'm right in saying a reasonable lap time for those cars was about a minute and 40. I think they were using the shorter format, um, uh, shorter format track layouts. And the, the gap at the end of the race was two and a half minutes. So the second place car was a full 40 seconds slower than it should have been around that lap. Uh, it was standout funny. Um, as a, a racing spectacle, and it had the entire press room and much of the support staff on their feet cheering as the next disaster befell one of these hapless guys in what was inevitably a Honda. Um, it was it, it was laugh out loud funny for the I think eight laps that these guys attempted to finish. That's the one from me. Well, I think we're done. That too, I hope, turns out to be a dailysportscar.com special here too. That would be a cracker. We are indeed finished. I am, I am amazed we did not, although it was referred to, we did not step up onto the wonderfully sponsored Bushu's Hammer Emporium Weekend Sports Cars Soapbox. So 
that, does that mean we're going to lose the backing? Well, no, I think my fat butt might have broken it last week and going off, or the week ah. before, I should say, about BOP. Um, yeah, we're done. Uh, we should say thank you. True, true thanks to Cooper Tires and to the Justice Brothers for making all of this possible, and to Graham and DailySportsCar.com for making this possible. Next week, a little bit of a foreshadowing. We're moving. Finally, unless something else happens to stop that from happening. And so I'm fairly confident you might be hearing a non-American voice on this end. I'm hoping it will be Graham and his young Jedi, Stephen Kilby, taking the reins on next week's episode because I will be lifting heavy boxes and putting them down again and trying to have a place for my wife and I to live that is good. So thank you, mate, as always. And thank you all for listening. We didn't get your question. You wanted answered. Fire that sucker back in with the next call for questions here on the weekend sports cars on the Marshall pro podcast. The end.